Welcome to Deconstructing Management, a podcast made by college students for college students. We've interviewed the chapter authors of the OpenStax Principles of Management textbook with the intention of bringing each chapter to life. Our goal is to make learning management not suck. Now let's learn a little bit about the interviewee for this chapter. Joe, thank you so much for coming on tonight. We really do appreciate you for coming on to talk to us. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. All right, so we're going to start it off. So, hi, uh, I'm Rob. Welcome to the Deconstructing Management Podcast uh, featuring Joe Weiss. Joe, again, thank you for uh, joining to talk to us about Chapter 4. So our podcast is designed to help students in college better understand the textbook and act as a supplementary resource for students on a managerial path. Oh, or who are just curious about management in general. Great. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, and, and how you came to write. The chapter's on uh, organizational structures and uh, internal and external uh, environments. Well, let me say a little bit about my background. Yeah, yeah of course. I feel like I've, my background's like a multiverse. I've been in a lot of things in a lot of places, but my undergrad um, major was philosophy. And I thought, boy, they're going to kill me for that at home because they want you to make money and all of that kind of stuff. And to be quite honest, the philosophy background has turned out to be one of the most uh, enriching. As I've morphed over into organizations, management, business, I still go back to that philosophical background. But something that a lot of people don't know about me, I also got a divinity degree because I was very curious as a very young man, maybe your age. Yeah, wow. And so I went I went to TCU for undergrad. I finished in three years. Then I went to Union Theological Seminary and got a degree from there. And then I went to Beirut, Lebanon and studied at the American University of Beirut. I studied Arabic literature, language, political structures, and so forth. And then I decided I didn't want to go in the State Department, so I came back to the United States. By the way, that's when Lebanon was a great country. It's now one of the worst countries in terms of economics. I apologize for them, and I'm sad that it happened. That's just kind of a nutshell. But then I, um, I've been in criminology. That was one of my first jobs was to be in criminology. I was the director of criminal justice for the city of New Bedford, Massachusetts. Wow. And then I got accepted to the University of Chicago thinking that I would be a criminologist. Chicago was dangerous in those days. And my wife said, I'm not going to stay here. It's too dangerous because it was on the border of some dangerous communities. So we went on up to the University of Wisconsin, Madison, where I got my PhD in both sociology and business. Wow. So that's a long way of saying, but, you know, I really appreciate anybody who wanders off and and does what they want to do because everything matters and it will all come together. I teach careers also at Bentley. It's one of my favorite courses. That's awesome. I, I'm sorry to take so long, but boom. No, no, that that was that was awesome. All right. So, you mind if we get into some questions? Sure. Awesome, awesome. So, so our first question of the night. Uh, so, we love that this textbook is free for anyone who needs uh, the information that it holds. That means that not only students but managers or even small business owners can gain from it. So, anyone could be listening. For those who haven't read Chapter Four yet, can you tell us what organizational culture is and why? Uh, it is important to managing large and small businesses alike. Absolutely. Now, of course, all dimensions of organizations are important. We know that. We know the strategy. We know that operations. We know that marketing, production, sales. We know all those are, are extremely important. But why is culture at the center of a lot of paradigms or frameworks? It's very simple. It was said by somebody a long time ago that, culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. Now, what does that mean? 
it simply means that the particular spirit of a place, in other words, culture is like the personality of an organization. A culture is the glue that integrates and keeps the organization together. And it has to do with the people. It has to do with all those other dimensions. Think of it as the glue or the personality. And when the culture starts going bad, you can guarantee that other parts will also follow. All right. So in the beginning of the chapter, we learn about internal and external environmental factors. Can you give us a brief overview of what that means for an organization? And just a quick example. Well, Ed Schein at MIT was the one who was talking about and studying about culture, said that really culture uh, integrates the internal with the external. So that's another reason why culture is so important. But the internal parts of an organization really take from the environment, the external environment, take trends, take resources, take their clues of competitiveness, stakeholders, what's going on, and they take that and make that into, whether it's a product, a service, or whatever. So the internal and the external never are separated. They always integrate because the external environment has the laws, all of the, the parts of what really govern the, the context of an organization. So look at that as two parts of a whole. So the, the question is integration. Organizations and organizational leaders, whether it's small companies, which I've you know consulted with as well as large companies, is that the leadership of an organization it's not just one person usually, it's a team, but it's their duty, their responsibility to make sure that, I'm gonna bring ethics in here as well, that what they're doing, whether it's product, service, or whatever, is for the good, not only of the people, but also of the process and the society. So I just wanna make that, that very clear. And I think we're seeing now in our societies, which is so pluralized, it's so divisive, it's always been pluralistic, but it hasn't been so divisive. And, 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 yeah. and organizations now are feeling that. Businesses are being challenged to take sides, as you noticed in the news. So more and more, the internal and the external have to play off of each other, but it's really the leadership as well as the followers who've got to say, look, we want a vision, we want a mission, and we want values to help drive us, whether we're dealing with artificial intelligence as a technology or service, or some kind of gadgets. Those particular bedrocks count. The leaders count. Their vision, their mission, and their strategy hopefully is consistent with what keeps the organization together. All right. So in the chapter uh, introduction, you mentioned that a survey shows about 59% of organizations are collecting information to develop AI strategies or to adapt AI solutions and how companies are implementing blockchain technology. How do you think some of these potential programs, once applied, can help to navigate internal and external environmental force? Well, artificial intelligence really is algorithms that are put together by people. So I want to make it clear that artificial intelligence doesn't exist by itself. In fact, all, most artificial intelligence applications and, and, and programs are going to have some kind of designer and human factor behind it and making it happen. So, but right now, artificial intelligence, it's, it's such a broad field. I'm writing two or three papers on it. I mean, it already is more or less indispensable for the medical field, not just for business, but for, for almost every field. And the reason that is, is because it is making routine task automated. But more than that, now it has their own learning systems. So 
artificial intelligence is teaching itself and teaching us. I mean, the robotics that are going on today are incredible. We know that robotics yeah. are going to be part of our everyday lives, whether they're cleaning our living rooms, helping diseases and helping heart physicians do heart surgeries and so on. It's not anymore something out there. It's something that's becoming part of what we need to make and make happen and, and do a much better job. If you know somebody who's had an operation recently or lately, there's probably been some kind of artificial intelligence and intervention involved in it. But coming down to little businesses and so forth, you might say, well, how does that affect the small business and so forth? Well, it's going to affect it in terms of making routine tasks automated so that it will free up people to be more strategic. And that's another yeah. thing that artificial intelligence will help us all do. People say, oh, it's going to take our jobs away. Oh, the doomsday sayers. No, no. Well, yeah. it will take some jobs away, but every generation, every era has had jobs. You know, transistors were everything, and then the chip came along. So whatever you say, it's going to make a change. We have to go along with it. So when you mentioned earlier, uh, organizational structures in the chapter, uh, you note that the first era really began between the mid-1800s and the late 1970s, and were strictly functional structures. But if we were to look back before organizations had business goals to a period like the Roman Empire, for comparison, what do you think their functional structure or culture may have looked like or consisted of based on what we learn uh, in this chapter? Well, even the Romans before then, the Greeks really were the originators of different types of structures. I mean, let's face it, our democracy, our Senate, our Congress were Roman, yeah. you know, Roman made. So every era and even today always has a blend of some bureaucracy along with some organic type of structure to it. And I've always said that the more you differentiate or take apart structures to make them flatter, organizations become flatter, horizontal, the more you differentiate, the more you have to centralize too. There still has to be a core of people at the top or laterally that are governing it. So we are still in the Greco-Roman era. It's just that we are now having the technology to be a lot more virtual than they were, but we still mm. have the roots of that with us. And right now, as we talk more about organization structures and, and those themes, we're going to have to not separate them from leadership. That's another course I teach. And right now we are in desperate need of courageous, honest, and ethical leadership to not only make the external environment act in ways that will help us in our internal environments, but because yeah. as you know, now I'm afraid we're going to be known as the age of dis and misinformation. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So that's something that I didn't want to, I didn't want to be known as, yeah. especially since like I'm young. <laughs> so I kind of just didn't want to be noticed. Yeah, well, that. you know, <laughs> I, honestly, Rob, your generation is going to have a big task, but I will say right now that you folks with our help and with other generations are going to have to, to make some courageous stands, not only in our organizations, but also in our society. Of course, yeah. I completely agree. All right, so it's easy to notice a decreasing amount of time between the eras that have evolved mechanistic and organic organizational structures. Do you see an era beyond virtual structures approaching? If so, how soon? And what does that look like for you? I don't want to go too much into futuristic uh, visionary scenarios, but we do yeah. know that right now there's kind of an atomization that is a taking apart of the organization and equipping it with each individual. 
And we've seen that particularly with the COVID, as it's probably going to be known as COVID and also the Delta. But what's happening is, when I say atomization, I don't mean just taking apart, but we are equipping ourselves, individuals, as well as teams with the technology, the know-how, and to some extent, the independence, along with what mm. our vision and mission is, to be able to work from home, on the road, and every other place. So I see a continuation of each individual being equipped, more fully equipped with technologies and with artificial intelligence to be a lot more independent. But at the same time, the more independent we are, the more cohesive we have to be, but just not in the same place and space. All right. So, uh, so you mentioned in section 4.6 that businesses are going to be transitioning from enterprises as we know them to social enterprises. How important is it for growing its small businesses to pay attention to their social impact? And do you see this as a lasting change to business models? Small businesses in particular are really the heartbeat of, of our country. Without small businesses and without small business entrepreneurship, we wouldn't make it as an economy, quite honestly. Of course, the Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 companies are, are part of the bedrock as well. But I think that right now, the social nature of the enterprise is being put to a test. And that test relates back to the external environment. Businesses cannot exist without an environment that's conducive to consumerism and freedom, Great. independence. And right now, that's why businesses, as I said earlier, I'm afraid they're going to have to start taking some sides. And for example, we are in a place and space right now where vaccinations are at the heart of the controversy. You know, before that, it, <laughs> it was human life. You know, is COVID going to kill us all? 600,000 dead, headed for 700,000. So the social nature of the enterprise really is not only the brains, but the heart and the spirit of the enterprise. So ethics matters more now than, I'm not going to say that it ever has, but right now we're at a point where we've got to care for each other. We've got to come together. I'm talking about the United States now. We've got China on a fast track to be number one economy of the world. That's going to happen. That's not something hypothetical. They probably will be the first, will be the second, and then so on. So when we say social enterprise, what we're talking about are our values, our direction, our courage, and more importantly than anything, though, is our culture, what we stand for, who we are. And we're at a precipice right now where we need all of us to come together. And we're going to have to do that through some battles, you know, but that's what democracy is. Democracy is messy. We've never been more part of that outer realm of culture, of national culture, since the Civil War. So within the six different types of organizational structures or systems, ranging from functional to the virtual structure, how do you think some of the foundational elements of the functional structure can carry through to the others? And is there any model or structure that you feel outweighs the other in our current socioeconomic climate? No, it's a great question. All these questions are great. I need another PhD to answer them all. <laughs> you guys really know what you're talking about there. These are, these are, these are tough questions. Quite honestly, I believe, I don't think I'm the only one, but I believe that even with the basic functional structure, which 
we talk about silos. You know, we have the marketing mm -hmm. department, and then next door is the production and the R and D, all the way to sales and marketing. But the functional structure had the expertise. Each person and each group had a specific expertise. Marketing people still need marketing expertise because production people don't have marketing expertise and salespeople don't have production. So you're going to still need the hmm. functional areas. But what's happened is the more that the organization has been integrated, the more these particular functional experts are working with the other areas. So, and hopefully at the center of all those areas is the customer. And I like to say the consumer. When I say customer, I say a person who buys and consumes. But when I say a consumer, these are people who have rights, justice, and needs that are humanistic, not just people who are buying products and services. So all of those areas start merging. They start merging together. But the earlier forms were just by themselves. And by the way, some small companies still start with earlier forms, functional structures. But the matrix structure, which, you know, was a little bit later down the road, was made and designed during the aerospace era in which a missile had to be made very quickly because we were competing with Russia. And so the matrix brought the functional and the, you know, vertical structure, the horizontal together. So we're still using matrix type structures. We're still using functional type structures, but this virtual piece is where a lot of those structures can be integrated virtually and with technology. We still need them. For example, if you look at our universities, we have management departments. We have operations mm -hmm. management. We still have those departments. Why is that? Because yep. they need to be taught specific expertise, but they all are working together just in different forms. Great explanation on that. So you mentioned in the 2018 Global Risks Perception Survey, predicted some uncertainties for business organizations in the future. Things like inequality, political tensions, the environment, cyber threats. So we're now in 2021. What do some of these predictions really look like as we nearly enter 2022? And can you forecast any other uncertainties that will come beyond our current horizon? Well, that's a very broad question. I can think of both threats as well as opportunities. Mm -hmm. And again, going back to the external environment, one of our biggest challenges organizationally is actually with politics. Politics is usually a bad word. No, it's not. Uh, we're going to have to bring our polity together. That is, we're going to have to bring our country together in order to have our organizations be healthy. And right now we're in the midst, as we've said before here, that's not going to be solved overnight. So if you ask me about the future, if you just look at some of our giants, Facebook, Google, some of these social media co companies that have taken a lot more power than I think they ever dreamed they would have or even wanted. But now you have some of the large giants, these bellwether, so to speak, these leader industries, as well as companies, we're going to have to see them acting a lot more ethically and a lot more for the interest of all the people. And we're going to still have this divide of misinformation and disinformation competing for space and time with all of us. 
And why do I say that? Without true beliefs in the truth and information, we're all vulnerable. So we're going to become more organic because of technology and social media. It's creating communities all the time. But we're going to have to turn our, our face now back to culture. What is the culture that we all want? What are the values that we all want? That's not going to be separate from organizational structures, from organizational vision, mission, and values, because we're all consuming some kind of information. We hope that it's truthful information, but it's making us more ethical. It's, it's forcing us to be a lot more ethical. It's forcing us to be a lot more courageous, and it's forcing us all to have to take the stand for the right paths to take. So I just want to emphasize that. And, and those people who try to separate all of these and keep them apart, no, we don't separate these things. And when people say, oh, let's not talk about politics or religion, I say, yes, let's talk about politics and religion. But when saying that, we're not talking about a particular politics or a particular religion. We're talking about what's good for all of us. We're talking about the common good. And organizations that produce products and services and do not do that in a safe, sound, and beneficial manner for the consumer are part of being on the dark side, <laughs> you know? Uh, so we're going <laughs> yeah. back to, you know, some of those earlier, you know, what was it? Star Wars things, you know, the dark side and the, the light <laughs> side. So anyway, it, it, yeah. it all flows together though. Speaking of organic, we are in an era going forward where the organic, the organicity of decisions and services and processes across industries, across organizations have an ethical element to them and hopefully a common good element to them. Whether you're a physicist, a mechanic in a garage, a university professor, uh, whatever, that's going to all apply to all of us, just like the climate and the environment is. I completely agree, Joe. All right, so we have one last question for you. Sure. So as students, we want to ask, uh, how do you see educational industries reorganizing and restructuring in the near future? Uh, that's something Nicole, our professor, seems to recognize and why we're here today with you. It seems like their external environment is becoming less stable. How do you see these institutions adapting? Okay, quite honestly, I'm scared to death. I'm just going to yeah. put it out there and I'll tell you why. There are already signs of the so-called disinformation and misinformation and so-called the dark side of our democracy. Why? Because the University of Georgia is already questioning tenure for faculty. Now, I understand the argument about tenure. I'm not going to say everybody needs a lifetime job forever. By the way, a lot of tenured people can get untenured if they do things that are, but the bad side of politics is taking over with our education institutions. Some of the, the forces and the parties that want to take away tenure also, I'm afraid, have some hidden agendas. And the hidden agenda is who's going to control the university? That's where we're at today. Who's going to control it? Now, the university really should be a multiversity because we're not doing one thing. We don't have one philosophy. The only oneness that we have is independence of research, common good for everybody. And right now, the university's at risk. We're at risk of being polarized. I'm worried about that. We're going to have to have some political will and strength to stand up for students being not brainwashed, shall we say? Right now, the political right saying, well, you're brainwashing students now by trying to you know, make them believe all this democratic stuff. 
And on yeah. the left, they're saying, well, you know, the democratic way of thinking is where truth is. <laughs> so we need to have both the political right and the political left be civil, be humane, and we should welcome argumentation and disagreement. But science still has to be the base of the university's credo. All right. Joe, thank you again. We are very delighted that you can make it. Uh, you did awesome. Thank you so much, Joe. I, I have to tell you, I love students. I love you guys. Uh, to tell you the truth, the university is yours. And the more voice you yeah. can have in it, I welcome it. So congratulations on these great questions. I have to go back and get another PhD, as I said. <laughs> but good luck. Good luck. And by the way, please stay healthy. And, and I wish you the best of luck in the world. Thank you, Joe. You too. Take care. You've been listening to Deconstructing Management, a podcast made by college students for college students. Be sure to check the show notes for resources related to this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.